Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Legion. I'm Ryan Gibson. And we're back with Karen Moncrief, writer, director, former actor, former model, former beauty queen, former current, lot of formers, current, current friend director, of the show, and current uh, very producer, busy director, and current producer. writer. She covers all the bases, Alex. She had a lot to say, and we had a lot to learn. It's so a three-parter. It's a three-parter. The first three-parter. Um, Karen, talk, man. She, she well, she's had, lived a lot of lives. So check it out. Adventure. Yeah. Enjoy. Thanks, everybody. Part two coming up. All right. So our show is called How I Got Greenlit for a very important reason. You actually want to hear that, I'm guessing. How I I got greenlit. Yeah. And by the way, like it's not literal like cigar chomping. I understand. I think, you know, you sort of, you were green lighting yourself by saying, I don't want this life. There's something better, right? That's the beginning of the process. So when I was, you know, when I was at LACC pursuing my certificate in film, which of course I didn't care about at all, but I wanted that education. I had started writing Blue Car or the script that became Blue Car. Growing up, your whole life lies ahead. You're on a voyage across an uncharted sea. He doesn't write that stuff to me. A road full of endless possibilities. Miss Stanning, very nice. I'd like you to enter the poetry contest. But on any given day... When your dad left, where are you standing? By my window. I expect you to take care of her when I'm gone. Get a babysitter. What did you say? Your life could change forever. Maybe you better find someplace else to live. Nice, good score. From the Sundance Film Festival comes the movie Newsweek declares powerful and honest. Rolling Stone raves Agnes Bruckner is an amazement, piercing the heart without begging for sympathy. Great poets touch the hidden nerve. I have this contest in Florida. Forget about it, I'll take you. What matters is that you keep doing the work no matter what. I finished it, or I think I was actually, I was still writing it when I was on the set of this movie called something about adventures of the young brave or something like that. Oh, waking up Horton, waking up Horton adventures of a young brave or something awful. And I was literally playing Dirk Benedict's love interest. He was a Sorry, but washed up actor from the 18. I know exactly. He's the face man. <laughs> Don't you say that about Dirk Benedict. I'm so sorry. He might be a good friend of yours. And he's probably a lovely person. No, I don't remember he's much great. about him. Yes. Name from the past. But, but yes. And, you know, I was a, I was a love interest and not, there was no sex in this. This was a, a straight to video kids movie. It was supposed to be cute and funny. And I think this brave was a ghost or something. I don't even remember the story, but Again, like I didn't have that much to do on the show and this was shooting in Big Bear and it was a lovely place to be and I would hang around the camera and watch what they were doing. And also hanging around the camera was the producer of that and his name was Pierre Oppenheimer and he became the financier slash producer, but really financier of Blue Car. And, and so I 
I sort of sidled up to him and we were chatting and he asked me what I was doing other than this. And I told him I was going to film school and that I'd made some short films and and that I was working on a feature. And he said that he'd like to read it. (laughs) And when that was all done, I told him that I would send him the script when it was finished. And I was in the middle of editing it and getting it ready to call it done. And I sent, I guess at that point, I also had done a short film, a couple really little projects, and then a a sort of more substantial short film that had played some festivals, but, you know, small ones. And I sent it to him and he said, great, I'd like to read your script. So I sent him the script and the thing that never happens to anyone, he basically called back and said, I want to option it. And I just said, holy shit, wait, what? (laughs) What? You know, at this point, you should know, like I was writing this script to do myself, to direct myself. And I'd read Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew. I'm sure you remember, you know, from these days, I was like devouring the, you know, the Bibles of, Mm -hmm. you know, how sex lives and videotape got made and how, you know, it was all that stuff. And so I was like, I'm going to put it on my credit card. I'm just going to do it myself. And he's like, well, I want to option it. And I, you know, I looked at his resume, which was a lot of what you, uh, you know, were talking about, Alex, about, you know, stuff that they were not movies that I had any sort of affinity for. And it was not where I saw myself going. And so I basically said, I won't option it to you unless you'll let me direct it. And he hemmed and hawed for a while because I, I think he might have wanted to direct it or something. I think it's so interesting when you were saying a lot of these people want to get out of the particular box that they're in, like your Emmanuel producer guy. I think maybe this guy did too, but I just basically said, no, I'm not giving it up. I'm going to, I'm going to direct this. And so to his credit, he actually said, okay, just based on my short film. And now knowing, I, well, of course I know what the movie's about, but now I wonder what his particular interest in that movie was or what he thought he might turn it into, maybe something a little closer to Emmanuel or Colette, but I was standing guard of that script. So anyway, he kind of like tried to put it together for some number of months, maybe like, you know, four or five, six months with no, you know, nothing coming of it. And then amazingly, the script won a nickel fellowship. So that sort of lent an air of legitimacy to the whole thing. And suddenly I think he went, oh, wait a minute, I might actually have something here. Because he did have an option, like a year option to produce it or whatever at that point. You know, one did of he those, actually give you cash for the option? Like a dollar or whatever. It was like he one did. of those. Okay. Yeah, 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 I think it was like, you know, it had to be, it was only like a dollar. It was a dollar, literally a dollar. Oh, we've but done it was many no, dollar deals here. Yeah, right? right? That's another thing we normally try to do on the show is try to explain to people like the background. Usually Alex stops the show and is like, well, let's talk about that, which is what happens when someone wants your script, Alex. Yeah. So legally money has to change hands. The dollar thing is the minimum amount that a contract is considered actually executed. So a deal memo or a short form, you know, something that a producer can hand to the writer or the producer or the maker of the the book or the script or the play is, Hey, I'm a junior producer. I don't have a lot of money. I do want to make a deal with you. 
can I give you a dollar with the understanding that later on you're going to make much more money when we raise the money for the film, you'll get paid as a writer, you'll get paid as XYZ. So it's a binding contract when a dollar is exchanged. <laughs> right. So Karen, during that time, you're saying you had submitted the script to the Nichols Fellowship and it had won a Nichols Fellowship. Is that right? Right, okay. right, right. And at the time, also, I was still taking classes at LACC and still doing the occasional acting job. But when I won the Nickel Fellowship, that comes with a little stipend. But at the time, it wasn't little to me at all. I mean, it's not really little. I think it was like $15,000 or something. And all you have to do is write another script in the, the next year for that money. And I wrote a couple. And I remember calling my acting agent and just basically saying, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I have $15,000. Yeah, it was really, it felt so good. And I remember like suddenly thinking about, okay, like now I was getting writing meetings and things like that. Like, and, and it was so great because instead of having to go into a room and show them what you can do in those like, you know, three minutes of being in the room, like they would have already read my thing before I arrived. And it it felt so good to me, like so much like, yes, this is who I am. This is like, like they can actually read on the page and like it or not. And they won't call me in if they don't like it. So I don't have to like worry that I won't be on. Like literally I had got at the end of my acting career, so twitchy and like, like one, one eye didn't want to open. And <laughs> when I'd arrive in the room, I would like have a face full of makeup, the push up bra, the, the heels, whatever in my armor. And I never showed up. I never landed in the room, you know? So this was so good. And I like got myself different kinds of clothes. Wow. Like, it was still when I thought I had to like dress up a certain was way. Was this a to, musical to montage people... of like you throwing out like all your like <laughs> totally symbols is. of oppression and push-up bras and then you're like yeah. getting the like well, I... jeans and like boots and practical <clears throat> director gear, you know, like to be fair, the jeans and boots didn't, which is like sort of like now I live in sweatshirts, jeans, boots, whatever. <laughs> that That's me now. And now actually more, um, the boots are only if I have a meeting. Otherwise it's like comfortable tennis shoes, of course. But no, there was a- No, there was I meant sort of like clodhopper hopper kick-ass boots, not fancy No, I boots. get yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I was doing that. Yeah. I was kind of rocking yeah. the Doc Martens yeah, in my film yeah, school yeah. days. Fuck yeah, yeah. But hilariously, when I was taking the meetings, clearly I still wasn't fully, fully in my own thing because I thought I still had to dress up a little. So it was the Midwestern in me, I guess. Um, so I, I went to Banana Republic and got like two outfits, like one brown cashmere <laughs> sweater and brown like pinstripe pants and one like gray. Like that was my outfit, which is so funny. Like I thought that was kind of fancy. Like it's a cashmere sweater from Banana you, Republic. You, and- you didn't get the Brian De Palma safari shirt with the 10 pockets and the like sort of pseudo military. <laughs> Oh, hilarious. I didn't, but I I should. Brian De Palma, interestingly, at one of the festivals that Blue Car went, what did Brian De Palma say to me, Eric? Like he liked the movie. He said, I'd like to kill you in the shower someday. Yeah. There were so many, I have to say, I have, have had so many like instances of men Including Harvey Weinstein when when oh, no. uh, the um, oh, no. yeah blue car oh, was at Sundance and they had just bought it like my meeting with him was literally me being taken over to his table 
luckily I was older than I was, you know, 38 when my movie got made. Yeah, I was 38. So when I was at Sundance, so he looks me up and down and says, I'm intrigued. That is the entirety of our conversation. Like it's, it's so weird. So, so weird. Uh, anyway, there's, you know. Well, there, Brian De Palma, you want to talk about male that. gaze. No, it's yeah. because, yes, no, because I made, a, I made a Brian De Palma clothing joke that only four people will get, but that's why we're here. Yes, I do. The Hawaiian shirt, I get that. No, it's not the Hawaiian shirt. It's the like combat shirt with like 10 pockets. Like he, he looks like he's going to go report on like, the troop surge and yeah, like war torn. Yeah, uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, he looks like yeah, a combat yeah. journalist. Sure. Got it. Yeah, got it. Yeah, anyway. no, I know that. That's what my acting teacher at Northwestern, or one of them, the the uh, Predator one, used to wear. <laughs> Yeah. I want to say the film Predator and not the other. Is that, do no, we need to unpack no, that? No, 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 it's the other oh. one. Yeah, well, we can or we don't have to. If, when we get to Blue Car. Well, you, you why, know, yeah, I mean, well, I would like to talk about that in general, <laughs> just as a woman coming up in the bit, because we've also had those stories, you know, and I, yeah. and I don't want to turn it into that and I want to follow your lead, but you dealt with a lot of shit coming up, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, mostly it's luckily when I was actually coming up, I didn't have like, thank God, because probably because my husband was my creative producer on my first three. And after that, like I, I knew what the hell I was doing and I, I, I didn't need as much protecting. I think nobody, except for those weird moments about like with, with Harvey, they were just moments, but they're, they speak kind of loudly. You know what I mean? They are like, uh, you are still, it doesn't matter that you've made this movie that my company has just bought. That's, you know, big splash at Sundance, whatever. It's still reduced to, I'm looking you up and down and evaluating whether or not you are sexually appealing to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> Which is no, really fucking it. bizarre. And I, and I certainly experienced that going in and out of other rooms, but usually in a subtle way. I didn't ever, thank goodness, after I made my movie, I didn't ever experience that as sort of baldly as I had as a younger person, as an actress in my career. I mean, as an actress, I had dealt with like the predatory manager who was like Gary Coleman's manager who like had this quote unquote exercise that he would, you know, would do. Luckily, I had a very protective Midwestern mom who flew with me and uh, made sure that uh, that I didn't get taken advantage of too badly. Yes, and there's a lot of those stories too, where mom isn't protecting you. Yeah, there just yeah. is. Yeah, there's a lot. There is a lot of that. Yeah. I used to go hand in hand with the business, and yeah, and I remember coming back to Northwestern. It was like that had happened. Like I don't know, my junior year or something, I got like plucked out and flown to LA for an audition by this manager. And, you know, again, like I, I'm from the Midwest. I don't know. He seems legitimate. He's Gary Coleman's manager, you know, and the guy is a total creep. Luckily he'd taken my mom and I to the Queen Mary and we'd eaten at the buffet and got so severely sick. We were both puking and shitting like for three days green. I missed the audition. And so like the guy couldn't get near me. I'm sure like he, you know, he still tried to like say, Hey, we need to work on your audition. And I was like, I was green. I'm like, dude, you know, you know, puke on your shoes. So again, like it's, you know, protection, it's this weird. Protection. No, no, but yeah, it is. And, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so no, but I want to talk about, not, I mean, I, I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't want it to be that, you know, I don't want yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, like, yeah. Let's get on to the good stuff. The good stuff. I yeah. mean, you won the nickels. Like that's huge. And you went to Sunday. I mean, like this yeah. is, this is, I would say like, this is happy endings to that beginning chapter. I mean, you were. The amazing thing is I, I really got to make the movie that I wanted to make, you know, on a very small dime, but more, it was more than on my credit cards. You know, that guy put up his own money ultimately, like, cause a bunch of other people that he tried to bring in to provide the money fell through, weren't interested, whatever. We, we spent a whole bunch of time trying to court other money that came attached with like, like bad casting choices or other things that I couldn't tolerate. And so finally he put up his own money. I put my money into it, like whatever little money he had to pay me for the script. Cause at that point I was, um, I was WGA, which is amazing. Cause after Nichols, I got my mm -hmm. first writing gig with Castle Rock doing some rewrite on a movie that would never, ever get made. I didn't know that at the time. I was like, yes. Okay. There are five huge writers names on this script, but I'm the one who's going to, you know, who's going to fix it. And I know how, and there's a lot of hubris involved early on. And, um, yeah. So of course that was forever. Anna, I think was, uh, it involved time travel. And a handwriting expert. That's all I remember. <laughs> Wait, yeah. you're going to drop time travel in a handwriting expert? Are that was my first write. My first professional writing gig was, yeah, doing a rewrite on something called Forever Anna that uh, I think it was based on a short story. It was so long ago. But at any rate, I got real money for it. And so I really didn't have to return to acting after that. And yeah. So at any rate, I was, and I joined the union and that felt like really like, that felt great, honestly. Like, like joining it's real. the unions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. like I got invited to be in the Academy after I made The Dead Girl, my nice. second movie. And it just felt like, wow, I'm like in the club, sort of. <laughs> yeah. You got so on a roll. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, was it that lift from Sundance and your first film that got you? Because Dead Girl, it's, I mean, I would say that's probably your biggest you know, it was very yeah. well received, huge actors. I mean, Tony Collette, yeah. I want to do two hours on Tony Collette, you know, whatever. Oh, I, mean, I love her so yeah. much. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it was interesting. It was, it was tough because after, after Blue Car, it had, I mean, it was like the first big sale at Sundance. And because of that, it didn't have the same, like the level of expectation wasn't as great. So it could be a lovely discovery for a lot of people. I think, I think our movie actually benefited from that. Maybe anyway, Miramax bought it and that was happy. The guy who put up the money, got all his money back and more made money on like, like when does that happen? You know? So it was all a really good thing, but then it was funny because I took a few more rewrite jobs, but the kind of stuff that was coming my way wasn't I think maybe people didn't quite know what to make of me or do with me because Blue Car's quite, you know, it's quite a, a dark little film and it's quite poetic and I don't know. I mean, to me, it's very much of its moment and those kinds of movies that in the indie space at that time, like, did you guys ever see Manny and Lowe, that lovely Lisa Kruger movie or I don't know. There, there were just like these little movies at the time that I quite liked. 
about girls and women and their experiences. But I think also there weren't like coming out of Sundance, I had lots of really nice, you know, the, the critics liked it and all that. But it didn't, then Miramax got involved in testing it and all that. And of course, there's a very uncomfortable sex scene at the end of the movie that's meant to be super uncomfortable and hard to watch. And unsurprisingly, the test audience, when asked what was their least favorite scene in the film, chose that one. (laughs) And so there was discussion of cutting it and whatever. I'm just like, no, that can't happen. So there was a lot of, there was some back and forth about that. You know, this was in the Harvey Scissorhands era. For the chillins that forget, I mean, let's yeah. just set the table. Yeah, yeah. Look, go ahead. Harvey Weinstein was a a force in Hollywood. Yeah. In this era, he discovered basically everyone that runs the business now. You know, many important directors, yeah, writers, absolutely. actors, filmmakers. You know, he yep. had great taste. He, yeah. he was a very effective producer and he changed the face of Hollywood, not only independent area, but then eventually the mainstream area with, yeah. you know, and we'll yeah. talk about the piano and which his, is a Miramax movie, yeah, which Absolutely. is a, a Miramax movie, movie brought, which is yeah. a quality film, but yeah. he also was in full marketing mode. Like he, oh, he yeah. was a, he was an all around producer, good yeah. A good sense of material, good sense of talent, finding new people, paying them nothing, giving them their shot. And then so the Harvey Scissorhands thing was working with these filmmakers in which he was the dominant force, right? He Part of hiring a young director is that it's a producer's medium. There's a direct line to Kevin Feige and a direct line back to David O. Selznick in that sort of like operating principle. Jerry Bruckheimer, there's just certain filmmakers that it's their playground. You can direct the film and put in your little flourishes, but just remember who owns the edit, who owns the aesthetic, who owns the casting. You're working for me, kid. And so yeah. Edward Scissorhands yeah. was, he had final cut. So a, a, a filmmaker would come in and be like, oh my God, I'm making a movie with Miramax. I'm on my way. And then they would see, oh shit, this guy's all over it. Like he's up my ass. Like he's I, this, here's my final cut. And he's like, Oh, you're cute. Let's get in the editing room and start the work. And so, which in our case to, to his credit, he, despite the fairly dismal <laughs> numbers of the test and the test screening, yeah, he, yeah. he basically understood that that scene was vital to the movie. So right. while I think I cut out maybe five seconds of it, which, you know, I would have preferred those five seconds in, but I think, uh, you know, it's a long scene and it goes on for a long time and it's still hard to watch. I, he didn't, other than that, like, and they paid for a new score, which was brilliant because, um, by the time we got to finishing blue car, like it, I had edited blue car with my editor. I think we had two and a half weeks to do the whole edit. And because we were submitting to Sundance and, and also cause it was his money. So like, like it was literally like interest was accruing and he was feeling it. So, so anyway, there was no time to do it. And by the time that we got to the, um, to doing the score, I had somebody, Lori Carson had some songs in there and I was really passionate about, like, I wanted her and her voice and I wanted all that stuff. And I had a different composer that I wanted to use. And he basically said, no, I am hiring this guy 
who had never composed music for a film before, who I guess was doing it for free or something, even though I had someone who would do it for free, um, and just said, you've had your way too many times, and now I'm having my way. So, and it was awful. The music was terrible. And luckily I got some of it kept out at the mix, but at that point it was a battle. It was a giant battle. So by the time that Miramax bought the movie, I was so relieved and happy to be in the hands of people that actually understood the kind of movie I was trying to make. Cause it felt a bit like the whole time I was saying David Strathairn and this producer was saying William Shatner, you know, I was saying (laughs) it just, we were seeing the movie. I, I was saying, I want this 15-year-old actress to play the part. And he was saying, let's bring in 25-year-olds in their underwear. You know, so it was, it was, it was rough. I mean, I'm just going to say it was rough to protect my movie along the way. So when it came to Harvey, like, because he never, like, I didn't, I certainly didn't know that he was raping women. God help me. I didn't know that. I knew that he, like, it was a wide open secret that he had mistresses, but that's what you were told. You were never, and I had a meeting with him at the peninsula, but there were many other people in the room. Oh God. And I never, yeah, yeah. I now wonder if those people stayed there in that room. While I was pitching, I got a a rewrite job from Miramax to rewrite this Martin Cruz Smith project called Rose. And like, I was pitching my heart out. Harvey was in the room and this was very exciting. Mm -hmm. And luckily at a certain point, I think he just said, yeah, sure, hire the kid, like whatever. She talks a lot. And, you know, and, and I think <laughs> oh he'd lost God. interest in me, thankfully. But, but those people, like his circle, who I think maybe in other circumstances would have like left, didn't leave, did not leave my side. And I feel appreciative of that. I don't know. <laughs> hey, thank you for continuing to listen to How I Got Greenlit. Let's revisit our interview with Grace Patterson and her story on making her own greenlit moment. My dream is bigger than just acting, and that's why I like launched my loungewear company because I was like, I want to eventually have my own production company. I'm going to call it Hollywood Monster. I already have it as mine, but and then I'm going to put like my loungewear and my clothing, bad kiss, into the film that I and then I had written, so I had actually written a professional cheerleading TV show, and I actually pitched it to HBO Max. <laughs> I like harassed them. I like messaged the executives on Instagram. I'm like, hey, listen, I need to talk to you. I have a TV show to pitch you. And they actually let me get on a Zoom call with them and pitch it. That was Grace Patterson, one of our previous guests on How I Got Greenlit. Please visit our vault and listen to past episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to high-quality podcasts. Now back to our fascinating conversation with Karen Moncrief. So would you say, and I, I've heard this from other people, and uh, and you have a ton of movies and work that we can talk about, but in general, you know, sort of bridging from that classic era that you made a film in, which is that like 94 to like 2004 of the, the golden age of the indie film director, right? Which Miramax mm-hmm. was a big part of. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Would you say that that, like, say so that's your destination at that point in your life, but now that's another stepping tone stone to today, right? Mm-hmm. So would you say that indie film directing prepares you for TV one-hour directing? Like, 
the, the sort of golden age no. that we're in now. It does <laughs> no. not. It's a no. different art form. It's a very, very different animal. Okay. And like my very first um, TV directing gig just sort of landed in my lap. It was an episode of Six Feet Under. And those Ooh, producers had, um, I know, a nice yeah, one, right? that's a good but firsty. I I know, but at the time I, I didn't watch television. I'm just going to say I didn't watch any television, not even HBO, which wasn't television. <laughs> right. I didn't watch any. Yeah. Any Cause you were busy being on Mike Hammer, private eye. No, 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 no. Actually I was busy at the landmark and the new art and the like, no, it oh, was all, I was yeah, all so art was house art all the house. time. Yeah yeah. 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 And so I was not really interested in TV. So, you know, six feet under was just at the beginning of right. this renaissance of yes. TV. Which by the way, Oh three, it's right. That gap. Right. That's where the like batons right. being passed. Yeah. Right. 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 So literally they hired me cause they really liked blue car and I showed up on set thinking I should do what a director does as far as I know, direct the actors. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that, no, if you come onto a show that's already got, you know, a season behind it, it's the producer's show. They're like the directors and you right. facilitate the producer's vision. And so even though I got that, okay, here's, there's a vision but like I came in expecting to direct the camera, expecting, you know, within what the the playground that they had already set out, like they were using those like beautiful wide angle lenses and stuff, really those cool shots that are low. And, and I was like, yeah, let's do all that. And here's a bunch of ideas I have. You know, I think they were just looking at me like, okay. Get us through our day. This I know that's all they wanted. But actually by the end of it, they're kind of happy, I think, to have some other ideas. And sometimes they'd say no, but lots of times they were like, okay, that's fun. That's cool. Let's try that. You know? Mm -hmm. So that was good. But then I do recall like at a certain point directing one of the actresses. And one of the things that I learned at Northwestern and other places in acting classes is one of the most valuable ways you can enlist an actor and their own imagination to sort of go on the journey with you is to ask them questions. Not that you don't have an answer to those questions, but that you're trying to get their, them to answer it for themselves. Explore and buy themselves. In. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was doing some of that with an actress and literally afterward had the producer pull me aside and say, you do not ask an actor questions. <laughs> you should know. And I was like, oh dude, he was like a producer, producer, not a creative producer. And I'm like, um, Actually, you do. <laughs> if you're a good director, you do. I'm going to go ahead and disagree. <laughs> exactly. But I didn't. And for a long time, I didn't want to do any television after that. I like being the boss. I like being like right. the, having the full vision and having everybody there in service of that vision. I'm enough of an egomaniac that I really, really, and I care deeply, deeply about the work that I'm doing that I want it to be great. And I want it all to cohere and feel, I don't know, I want to elevate it, you know? So I always want to elevate everything that I'm doing. And sometimes they don't want you to elevate. They just want you, like you said, they want you to help them make their days. They want you to kind of play nicety nice with the actors and make sh- give them blocking, yeah, don't which break also anything. just as a director, right. I, I hate blocking. Like I try to always just put the stuff that they need in the right place by the light that I want so that they feel like they're just intuitively going there. I don't want them to ever feel like I'm treating them like a meat puppet, you know, like, okay, now oh, you're there. Well, okay. Me. Actually, so this is a nuanced directing question. So yeah. you do, so you walk into a space and yeah. you're doing a scene. 
right? And yeah. so you're with your actors and your keys are kind of surrounding your huddle with your performers. So you're saying to them, hey, let's do a read through. And they're on their sides. They have their little paper or maybe they're off book of the script. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, what do you got? And let them just do it with no I note. don't quite say what do you got. Yeah. Well, like, hey, so let's I, do a run through. You just yeah, say, hey, yeah, yeah. go. And then they start performing. And then your yeah. do you have a lens in your hand? Does your DP have a lens? Are you doing the like picture hands, the like framing? Are you just kind of walking I don't do around them? Hands. Yeah, I do definitely walk around them. Well, what what I generally do is obviously before the actors, now I'm talking about my movies and stuff, but mm-hmm. before the actors ever get on the set, I've spent tons of time in a location, first by myself, and that time is really important. And if it's something I've, I've, I've written, I already are, I already have super strong ideas about where things happen, obviously, and, and how I want the locations to look so that once we've chosen a location, all that's hopefully in place. And then I start to spend time in the place just to feel how the light, the natural light of a place is. I've only like my movies have all taken place on location. They've never been on sound stages. I feel like it's really important to spend time and see like, where is the light speaking to you? And then I will talk to the production designer about how I want things arranged so that let's say it's a scene of someone writing a letter at a desk or something, or I don't know, you just arrange things or there's a bed in the scene and I know where I want the bed vis-a-vis the window and the door Mm -hmm. and all that. So that when the actor comes in, if it's that letter writing scene, I have already made sure that the prop is there during the rehearsal and sitting on the the you know the desk where I want them right. to be. So they're naturally going to just go there, and right. whether they're so sitting, start sitting, or standing, yeah. exactly. So that the DP and I, and then the DP during prep, and I would already have, I will have moved my assistant around a thousand times in a thousand different places and done a photographic storyboard, so that. I can then show everybody, this is where we're looking now. This is, you know, this is a part of the room we're going to see. This is how I want things to set up. And almost always the actor seems to just organically line up there because I've done that sort of homework of setting things up that that's where they intuitively do it. I also, I guess, because I was an actor, I act it all out in the prep. Like Uh I, and I will find if it doesn't feel right. Like, um, even though I thought they should be standing over here, I'm like, I keep doing it and it doesn't feel right in my gut. So, okay, that's not right. And every now and then you'll have an actor who will really surprise you and do something that's absolutely different than what you'd envisioned. And if they're a brilliant actor, you fucking let them because, you know, they're bringing something from their deep, deep truth that suddenly you're going, oh, holy shit. That is why they do this. And that's why you're Carrie Coon and I'm Karen Moncrief. You're like, you know, that's why you are a Chicago person. Oh my God. And a goddess to all of acting. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, I, and I, and I think it's disrespectful to an actor to come in and say, you know, and I know TV is all about this because they're on a limited amount of time or whatever. And that's why it's so often things slow down and the actors argue with you because you deny them those early moments of just finding the truth of something. Yeah. Feeling like they minted it or found it. Or I could say, you know, if it's in season two or three, the actors are have more power than you. You're That's the, absolutely you're the hired gun. You walk in, you're like I got big ideas and they're like (laughs) 
No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, <laughs> I do you. not do that anymore. I've learned, I've since learned where my place is on a TV set, mm-hmm. but it's definitely different than when it's, it's your a movie different set. skill. It's a it's different a completely muscle. Completely different. It's a different yeah. job. So, really. 13 reasons why Cameron Duncan. I love Cameron yes. Duncan. Okay. So, Cameron you know shot Cameron our film. Duncan? Yeah, yeah. Cameron shot Ryan and my film that we shot a few years I ago. I adore yeah. him. Yeah, he's the and best. And weirdly, they brought him on in that second season to do something different. And he did it. And man, I loved working with that guy. He's got such a gorgeous eye. He's so creative. We had so much fun together. Yeah. That was a great, great collaboration. Yes. I Shout really out to director guy. of photography, Cameron Duncan, Cameron has Duncan, done his many brilliant. great films, many, many super awesome TV shows, including he just did Sylvester Stallone's new show. Oh, amazing. No, he's so talented and yeah. his wife's a talented actress. Yes. And, yes. Yes. and they had a baby recently. Yes. So, and they're just yeah. like living that life there. Yeah. They, they go to Europe with the, that kid is like traveled better than me. Oh, they amazing. go all over. They're very uh, excited. Yeah. No, he's, he's, He's awesome. He's yeah, he's the eye. best. He's the best. By the way, Karen, yeah, it feels like we've arrived. Yeah, no, it's good. Do you have any yeah. other, you know, advice, cautionary tales, anything for people who, like you, maybe are in one aspect of the business, but really want to do what you do? I have a couple quick things that yeah. I, I think I could just say. Yeah. And this is probably especially for people who are writer-directors. I see a lot of times writer directors will very easily, the first time somebody says, Hey, I like your script and I want to option it, be so relieved and grateful that they'll give away what my first manager, who was really wonderful, Brad Gross, used to say, Is your gold. He would always say, like, your writing is your gold and don't give it away. And I see so often new writers will let a producer, and I'm sorry, you guys, I know your producers and you probably probably try and get new writer, directors, whatever, to give you their stuff for free. This is what you're about ready to say is 100% true. Well, you don't know what she's going to (laughs) say. No, I think he probably does. Like, in my case, had I let Pierre Oppenheimer optioned my script for probably like a hundred dollars at the time. He probably would have paid me to own it in perpetuity. I'm sure I would not be a director today. Whereas I had the balls to basically say, no, I'm going to direct this. So if you want to direct and you're a writer and you have a script that's getting some attention and that people want, hang on to it. So that's one thing. And then the other like really, really big thing that I would just say for like first time directors. And this is became kind of a mantra for my husband and I, and he as the creative producer on the set and me as the director on the set is that there will be problems. Like that's not an aberration. That's not the exception to the rule. That is the rule. And so your job, once you've done, once you've written your script and you've cast it beautifully and you have done all the prep in the world so that you go completely ready to make the most you know, fulfilled version of your vision that you can on your set, shit's going to happen. There's going to be a location that like, oh my God, they don't have the right key. You need to get a shot off at sunrise and everyone, the whole crew standing there, you can't get into the location. You're going to have to figure out something else. There's another actor who's puking and sick and won't come in that day. And you still, you have to get those scenes because you only have that whole office location. It's only dressed for this one day. You got to rewrite, rip pages out, figure out how you're going to scene together your story. You get to the, you know, the point at which you have shown your first audience, you know, your first 
personal preview and you realize the ending of your movie does not work, they will not allow you to, you know, you don't have the money to reshoot. You have to go back and look at all of your outtakes and how can you fill in the giant hole that happens in your movie when you take out the shit that doesn't work. And like all that stuff is super fun. It's super creative and exciting to dig as deep as you have to dig, you know, on a daily basis to sort of say, all right, I know my movie. I am the protector of my movie. Every single thing I envisioned will not happen, but how can I bring the majority of what I need to the finish line so that I can put a beautiful movie together? That's the confidence of telling a DP like Cameron uh, Duncan, hey man, I don't know what I don't know. You've shot 40 films and 100 hours of television, but I know the story. Yeah. I know the characters. Yeah. So yeah. if I say something wrong, if I use the wrong terminology, pull me aside and give me a SWAT so the rest of the crew doesn't judge me. But like, I know the story. I have right. confidence in these arenas. Lead me there. Yeah. And Alex, I would even say beyond that, not just do you know the story, but I remember on my first movie and I had a really terrific DP, Rob Sweeney, working with me on that. He also went on, I think, to work on Six, uh, Six Feet Under and a bunch of other things. I know he's got a huge resume too. But like sometimes you want what you want and sometimes everyone gets tired and there are times when someone will say no to you mm-hmm. when you have to say and sometimes they'll even try and like, I don't know, make you feel stupid for asking yes. or like you're being yeah. difficult or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes it's important to just say, no, 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 I really need to be closer. And even if they say, well, there is no way we can physically get closer and say, well, then we need to swap a lens or we need to move the camera. Or yeah. we, and I know we set that up or I know you're saying I can't do this moving shot like this, but that's what I want. Hopefully you've communicated yes. so they have the tools they need. And it's knowing when them, to dig your heels in. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And don't be afraid to do that too. Yep. Not to be an asshole no. or difficult, but you will never, the other couple things to say is you will never regret pushing for what you want on set. You will absolutely regret it if you buy a take you don't believe or you think mm-hmm. you know your actor can do better. And if you like accept, like if, the if moving you, on you fulfill, aesthetic. exactly, yeah, you fulfill on. your schedule beautifully, nobody gives a shit. <laughs> no. At the end of the day, you can like, <laughs> I, I like to think I always make my days and stuff, but sometimes you got to push to get that extra take, that extra setup, yes. whatever, because you need it and you know, you need it and you know, you won't have a movie without it. And so don't be an asshole about it. Be as kind as you can, but get what you need and trust yourself that you know what you need. Yes. Variety does not open your review with. She made her days. No, no one gives a shit. Yeah. The producers will, and the producers will tell you things like- She came in on budget. Like none of it matters. Film is forever. Yes. You got to make a good film and you got to get your performances. Because finally, after all that other stuff, like sometimes, especially about takes, you know, for me, it's all about the performance and the difference between almost there and absolutely there. Like you feel it in your gut. And if an actor's like almost there and they're giving it and they're giving it and then it's lunch, it's like, fuck it. You've got to buy a meal penalty and you, you've got to do this thing because that's why people go to the movies to see those moments that are sublime that are like, Oh, I just saw Nick Nolte, like (laughs) be brilliant, you know, and, and that's why we do it. Yeah, that was amazing. I mean, yes, I, I'm glad you're saying that. You seem to co- combine quiet confidence with deep humility. And I think that a crew is going to pick that up and take massive performers. Advantage are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> performers are going to pick that up 
And I think it comes through in your work. I think that it allows for, look, our job is hard. The hours suck. Mm. There's a lot of people in it for the wrong reasons, et cetera, et cetera. And working with people like yourself, it just makes it better. Makes the product better, makes the day better, makes the just interpersonal better. It's difficult. It's just difficult, especially yeah. first time or newbie, but now you're, yeah. you know, a seasoned veteran. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you found your voice and you found yourself. And that's a great story. You know, just it's and a inspiring. perfect segue to the piano. And a perfect finding segue your voice. Finding yourself, <laughs> finding your voice. Exactly. Yay. Now you're getting it. I yeah. do want to say though, I think that the biggest Karen, obviously, you know, what you said. I believe it to be all true. I think the biggest thing though, and I tell people this all the time as well, and I think this is the biggest thing to take away from what you said. One of the biggest things is that just being nice and kind on set and working in that it it is really hard and it is very time consuming, but just being kind and nice, even when you're trying to get what you want, which is pushing the crew or pushing the budget or pushing time as everything always does just being nice, but sticking to your guns in a nice way is really, I've seen amazing things get done when people get behind your vision because you're a good person. And I think that's a big, I think that's a big deal. Nobody wants to work with or for an asshole. I mean, not in today's world. Not, not, and I've seen it now. It's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. It's, it used to be where people, could be assholes and really, and I'm, and I know that there are still assholes out there that work and they work a lot, but it's changed a lot. And I think you really see that, that it doesn't, it doesn't work as well today. People will walk off your set nowadays. They literally will leave. They literally will leave. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that. That's great advice. And that's one thing we try to be on how I got Greenland is at least inspirational or informative. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember, like, I read everything I could get my hands on before I made my first movie about, like, there was a book. What was that book? It was a collection of, you know, basically people talking about how they, I think it was called My First Movie or How I Made My First Movie. Do you guys know that book? Never I'm trying to remember. It. Yes. So it was around it, it was in 2002. Yes. And each chapter was um, yeah. uh, the story of like Soderbergh and yeah. Of yeah. That era. yeah. Yeah. I have that book too. Oh no, I was a book freak. I had all of those. I had Sidney Lumet's book. I had, oh, uh, yes. I mean, there's book. a lot yeah. of them and we'd like to turn people on to the, syllab- the syllabus, if you will. So definitely Rebel Without a Crew is a huge one for me too. Yeah. Inspirational, but also like very practical information. Yeah. The hits keep coming. Right. I'm digging this. She's got a lot to say. Finally, we're getting to the piano. Though, right? I can't. This has Next been I, riveting, I guess, <laughs> is the word I would use at this point. I just, I, I want to say, like, I want to get a word in edgewise. Like, I have something to say. And she is so fascinating when she's talking that I'm like, oh, I just am going to swallow that. Yeah. Because she's much more intelligent and savvy there's an old uh than myself Ma- the maltese falcon okay uh, i'm listening it, it's um a mcguffin sydney green street plays the bad guy 
Okay. And he's talking to Humphrey Bogart, Sam oh, Spade, are... detective. Sam Spade, classic. And they're having a cigar in front of his, you know, luxurious fireplace. Uh, a brandy? I'm a man who likes to talk to a man who likes to talk. Oh, and I, and I, would, uh, I would adopt that to say that she's a woman that likes to talk to men yeah. that like to talk because we all can be verbose on this show. We'd like and, to talk. And um, she's got a lot to say, though. On, but good stuff. Like good stuff all yeah. the way through. Hour two. We're talking hour. I mean, it's over an hour. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are hearing at this point, but like literally, I think this interview was 17 days. And we had to cut it down. Our editors had to cut this down. Thank you for joining us for part two. Going into part three. Part three is, is the piano, which is an awesome, awesome discussion about the piano. You have to listen to the, because I don't think a lot of people out there know the piano or remember the piano or need to revisit the piano. Yeah, the piano. But. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> check it check it out. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot. This has been How I Got Greenlit. Part two of Karen Moncrief going into part three. I'm Ryan Gibson. I'm Alex Legion. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Next Chapter Podcasts.